and welcome to another edition of The More Show, which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. On today's show, I'm about to be joined with our guest, Donald Schmidt. Now, Donald is the former co-director of the J. Allen Heineken Center for UFO Studies. He has served as director of special investigations there for 10 years. Schmidt is the author of dozens of articles about UFOs, as well as the co-author of two best-selling books, Witness to Roswell and The Truth About the UFO Crash at Roswell. Presently, he is a contributing writer for UFO magazines and is on the board of directors for the International UFO Research Museum in Roswell. Donald Schmidt, welcome to the show. Well, Kevin, a pleasure to be with you and to speak with you once again. Thank you. Well, it's an honor to have you on, Donald. So um, how did you get involved with uh, UFO research? I was a special investigator for the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who will, you know, go down in history as the foremost authority on the subject of uh, unidentified flying objects. He started out, certainly, as the consultant to the Air Force Project Blue Book. He served in that capacity for 19 years, and um, he would do a full 180-degree turn as to uh, his official position on the subject. He was originally their chief debunker, and he became a, certainly an outspoken advocate. And then with the creation in 1973 of the Center for UFO Studies, and I started working with Heineck in the late 70s, and then right up until his death in 1986. And at that point, I was appointed the Director of Special Investigations for uh, the Center for UFO Studies, and I served in that capacity for 10 years. I was also uh, one of their co-directors also during that time. And we initiated our own independent investigation of the uh, so-called Roswell incident, the famous uh, case involving the crash of an un unknown object outside of one of the most uh, strategic um, military facilities in the world at that time, Roswell, New Mexico. And uh, here we are now, 21 years after that, and three best-selling books, and a motion picture, and over 30 documentaries, and traveling all over the world. And we are still very much hot on the case, hot on the trail, running, you know, this race with the undertaker, as we often call it. Yeah. Certainly the attrition level of the World War II generation only intensifying, even as we speak. So we realize, you know, we're... Clearly, you know, in the final minutes of the last quarter, so to speak, of this, this ball game, And uh, we have to remain, you know, as diligent and as aggressive as possible because uh, I can't tell you, Kevin, the frustration for as many times that we have come a-knocking on people's doors, years, months, weeks. We spoke to one widow just as she was returning from the funeral of her husband, who was, you know, at the base, was at Roswell at the time of the incident. And it's gone forever. Whatever information they had, you know, it's, you know, beyond a retrieval. So we, uh, again, we have only, we have, we have actually intensified, we've stepped up our efforts just in the last couple of years. Now, why does the story of Roswell still matter? I mean, why won't the story of Roswell go away? Well, first of all, because the people involved didn't go away. Uh, you know, 10 years before we became involved, when the late Jesse Marcel Sr., who was the head of intelligence of the 509th Bomb Group, 
Uh, I emphasize that this was the first atomic bomb squadron in the world at that time in 1947, actually stationed at Roswell. And given Marcel being the head of intelligence, that made him the number one intelligence officer in the United States military at that time. And, you know, Marcel would be with the assistance of another intelligence officer, a counterintelligence officer by the name of Sheridan Cavett. They were the first military people at the scene of the crash. They were led there by a rancher by the name of Mac Brazel, who first discovered all this unusual debris. And nobody could identify it, uh, whether it was the military, whether it was local law enforcement, fire officials, uh, uh, media people, no one could identify this material. And the fact that Marcel would become the fall guy. He was the one who was ordered to pose for two photographs with substituted uh, weather balloon wreckage, knowing full well that this was not, you know, anything like what he had actually handled, you know, held right in his own hands. And he was told, you know, by his superiors, you know, just, you know, just, just be a good soldier. It'll all come out, you know, in five years, 10 years, 15. Well, he would wait 30 years, and he was dying of emphysema at the time. And he realized it wasn't going to come out. The truth was not going to come out in his lifetime. So he broke his oath of, of secrecy, and he went before the world in 1978, you know, testifying to the effect that, you know, being familiar with all materials, and he was talking about metals, being familiar with all materials, both foreign and domestic, I can assure you this was nothing made on this earth. Now that's quite a profound statement. And for him to have said that, even at that point, I still, you know, I was working, starting to work with Heineck, and I was, you know, young and getting, you know, my feet wet, you know, working with, uh, you know, the, the greatest authority on the subject in the world at that time. Yeah. And so this went past me. And it was 10 years later, after additional witnesses had verified, had corroborated what Marcel had claimed, I felt I needed to go down to Roswell, New Mexico, with the assistance at that time, my partner, uh, Captain Kevin Randall, and we thought we would wrap this up in a weekend. I was a complete skeptic. I felt at that time there was no way they could keep something that controversial, that, you know, unusual, a secret after all that time. And I was wrong. Um, and specifically when I also had the experience of speaking with first-hand witnesses who had actually handled the material. And as they very vividly and accurately, between, you know, witness after witness, described the same type of materials, I realized that either I was sitting on one of the biggest stories of all time, or this was something so top secret, so extraordinary, that either way it would be a fantastic story. And, you know, here we are now after having spoken to over 600 witnesses, and they're all supporting the flying saucer crash. There are no witnesses to this being a weather balloon. There are absolutely no witnesses to this being Project Mogul, which was a similar balloon with the difference that it was part of a top-secret project in 1947, launching 
basically a microphone, an acoustic listening device, with the theory that if the Soviets were to detonate their own nuclear device, that we would pick up the shock wave in the upper atmosphere. Well, there are no witnesses to that. And then the fourth explanation, the silliest, the most ridiculous one of all, the anthropomorphic wooden crash dummies, uh, there are, again, absolutely no witnesses. And simply for the case, that project wouldn't even originate uh, until five years later, but what about, five years after 1947. But what about the people, that, that sorry, these interviewees that you see on these documentary channels who, you know, justify that, you know, all it was was a down weather balloon and all these silly people are making a nonsense about nothing? They're not witnesses. They are strictly, you know, spokespeople either representing the government, the military, or there are, you know, our standard as far as uh, uh, debunkers. I won't even call them skeptics. Uh, they have an agenda. And uh, there has not been a single first-hand witness who has actually been out there, who has handled, who has seen, who has transported, who has loaded, who has trucked, who has flown any of the recovered materials, including bodies, from the site, that have testified to the contrary. There just aren't. And the 600 people that you've interviewed, or maybe 600 plus, how could they all be part of a, a disinformation uh, a story or, or a part disinformation story? I mean, you're, you're talking about first-hand witnesses, aren't you? Well, we're talking about over 150 first-hand, and then we're probably talking of another 200 second-hand. And then beyond that, we're talking about, uh, you know, my brother told me this, that type of thing, or I heard this from my father through my grandfather, so third-hand and beyond. But nonetheless, still handed down through, you know, from generation to generation, uh, family members, people close, uh, doctors, for example, who Dr. Uh, uh, Richard Kromschroeder, who testified as far as to what the late uh, O.W. Pappy Henderson described to him and, sh and showed him a piece of the, the, the wreckage. So he held it firsthand, but nonetheless, he was able to repeat what, Hender what Henderson told him uh, secondhand. So but the point is, as you, as you pointed out, Kevin, they are all corroborating one another. No one is disagreeing with the basic you know, contention that what was indeed re recovered was something made off this earth. And much to the credit of the witnesses, they don't talk about spaceships, they don't talk about extraterrestrials or little green men. They talk about the object, they talk about the ship, they talk about the metal-like materials, and they talk about the little men, they talk about the little people. But yet, when you then ask them, well, how are you sure that they were not from here? They are quick to point out, as one officer said to us, they sure weren't from Texas. <laughs> exactly. Now, why is Roswell the, the sort of granddaddy of all UFO cases? I mean, if, if we mention Roswell, you know, we think ufology, we, we, you know, we think extraterrestrial. Yeah. Why? Well, it, I think mainly because it encompasses every aspect of what would what, what not only consider a good UFO case, you're not only talking about sightings, you're talking beyond that, you're talking about an actual recovery. You're talking about where people actually, you know, were involved with a retrieval operation. You were talking about people who were involved in the recovery operation, the transporting of the material. You have so many different people involved from so many different aspects that any one of these 
individuals would make for a good UFO story, and yet they're all involved with Roswell, the one. And then we talk about all the civilians who were involved, the rancher, his neighbors, young children who were involved, um, and then the press, the reporters who attempted to go out there, reporters who attempted to get to the rancher before the military did, and how uh, even a wire recording of him describing the bodies he observed was confiscated. So you have violation of First Amendment rights in the United States, uh, United States Constitution at that time. And then you have the ominous threats, the fact that the United States military, again, in strict violation of our Constitution here in the States, was used to threaten its own citizenry. And, you know, I think it's one of the reasons we did a movie about it, and there's a there's plans to do another movie on Roswell as we speak. And I think above everything else, Kevin, the fact that it's the one case that could prove the reality of the UFO phenomenon, whatever it is, once and for all, the fact that we don't have to wait for the next sighting, we don't have to wait for the next landing or the next crash, the idea that the United States government and other governments around the world may already possess that physical evidence so in other words, we just need to, you know, go to our own elected officials and say, open the files, show us, prove to us you don't have any evidence to the contrary. Well, well and, why, why haven't they? Why has it taken almost 50 years and it's still nothing has been released? Why? I think for, for two main reasons. Uh, uh, first of all, I, I still maintain the position that it is a cover-up of ignorance, that they still don't have any answers that um, you don't have your proverbial landing on the White House lawn or, you know, you know outside as far as um, any uh, government, world government leader as far as uh, where you have a direct confrontation. And at Roswell, you have a crash. Um, you have recovered remains and nothing that tells you from why or from where or from who. So what do you know? What can... Uh, so what, what solutions can you uh, ascertain just based on having physical evidence? Uh, I think a good analogy is imagine if you could take something as simple as a, as a toaster and transport it back in time, say back to the dark ages, the middle ages, and they might be able to take it apart, put it back together again, but if you can't plug it in, you can never get it to work. And so I still am of the position that whatever they recovered at Roswell, they still can't get it to work. They still don't have any idea. And as a result, what do you announce to the public? The fact that there are aircraft, there are you know, objects that are able to fly through our airspace throughout, throughout the world, in sovereign nations you know, around the world, with total impunity, and none of our governments, none of our military can do anything about it. And I think the most sinister, the biggest reason, as I mentioned a few moments ago, the fact that they threaten civilians, the fact that they may have carried out some of those threats. And then the government culpability, the fact that people would be held responsible for the fact that they were threatening uh, parents with the killing of their children, children that they would never see their parents again, all over this weather balloon you know, story. And so there would be a lot of explaining to do beyond the fact, well, why did you keep this a secret for 63 years? There would be a lot of responsible people who have kept it, you know, 
from the world after all this time. And how could you ever trust your government again if they've lied for 50 years? Exactly, exactly. And it would be just the tip of the iceberg. You can, co- you can cover up something of this magnitude all that time. And the thought that a handful of people have decided for the world, uh, yeah, um, it's just beyond, you know, any type of... Uh, but it's human nature, I guess, that whenever somebody has something that they, as of yet, can't profit from or, you know, gain you know, control and power from, they tend to hide it. They tend to cover it up. And so that's why Roswell too remains, as I believe, you know, the, the most grandiose cover-up of all time for that reason. Well, do you think they have tried to reverse engineer anything they've, they've uh, sort of figured out yet? Oh, of course they have. Of course they have. In fact, um, as we describe even in our recent book, uh, our current book, Witness to Roswell, that there was a concerted effort in attempting to create self-healing metal, as they called it, immediately following Roswell, and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which uh, became the, uh, you know, the depository of all the wreckage that came in, specifically because they had the Foreign Technology Division, which did all the reverse engineering of captured weaponry and armory from World War II, for example. And so it would make perfect sense that if you had wreckage of either foreign design or something beyond that, it would go to foreign technology. And we even had the, uh, the late General Arthur Exxon, who was at foreign technology at that time, describe to us that they were informed the materials were coming in and they prepped the lab. Uh, the, 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 the scientists were all ready as far as this material coming in. And he said when it arrived that no one could identify it just by visual you know, impression, that they thought that it had to be Soviet, that a, but upon analysis, they unanimously concluded that the materials had to be from space, that uh, there, was, there was absolutely uh, no identifying this material as being of earthly origin. Now, we've had firsthand witnesses from the Bureau of Standards here in the States and RAND Corporation and General Electric and Hughes Aircraft all talking about receiving piecemeal wreckage for breakdown and analysis. And it would appear, for example, witnesses described to us that there were silken strands of material and you could hold a light, a light source, a beacon up to one end and the light would shine out the opposing end of the strand of, you know, silk material. Well, that's describing fiber optics. And that was in 1947, yet fiber optics wouldn't uh, come into development until around 1970. So it appears that may have been somehow uh, duplicated, reverse engineered. And I mentioned the the self-healing metal. Uh, I don't know if the, the word nitinol means anything. You could go onto YouTube and you would actually see demonstrations. Now, you know that witnesses at Roswell uh, clearly describe this memory material, this paper thin, near indestructible material that you couldn't cut, you couldn't burn, and yet you could crumble it, you could crease it, you could fold it, and you would place it onto a smooth surface and it would flow like water. It would just smooth right out. 
And I had mentioned Wright-Patterson's attempt to create self-healing metal, as they called it. And they had contracted Patel Institute. It was a, it's an internationally famous national laboratory here in the States. In the, it's in the state of Ohio, just yeah. down the road from Wright-Pat. And they developed around 1960, so in other words, 13 years later, an alloy by the name of nitinol, which is a combination of titanium and nickel. And as I mentioned, Kevin, you could go to YouTube and you type in, you know, N-I-T-I-N-O-L, and you will see all these demonstrations where it is a hard piece of metal and is dipped into hot water. And when it is withdrawn, it is like rubber, like taffy. And then it is dipped into cold water, and it, again, assumes its original rigidity and shape. Now, a lot of surgical instruments are manufactured with nitinol, and uh, unbreakable uh, eyeglass frames that you can twist and bend, and they all snap back to shape. We have that, uh, but it's nitinol. It appears that may be some uh, something that was developed as a result of Roswell. And the timing, the fact that it happened immediately after the, the wreckage came in at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, that they would start looking into self-healing metal. Their terminology, not mine. So, yes, I have no doubt that uh, they have made every effort to try to reverse engineer so this could give us a leap of technology over the past decades that we've had that we haven't had in hundreds of years i had a retired he's a brigadier general he was head of army intelligence at the pentagon and uh, i was asking specifically regarding personnel at roswell and army files at the pentagon and he was dealing with his superior officer at that time. And he seriously made the comment when he, he told me at one point that none of my files regarding Roswell were at the Pentagon, that I'd have to look someplace else, or so he was told. And then I asked him, I said, Colonel, what do you believe? And then he made the comment, well, where do you, where do you think we got the stealth technology? And I thought he was joking. But he said it deadpan serious. And so I don't know that he knew that for a fact or if he was just, you know, you know voicing a, a supposition on his part. But nonetheless, he said it. He made that comment. And I think, especially over here in the States, uh, quite frequently, you know, stealth, that tech, that very, again, that, that leap, that quantum leap of technology is equated to recovery of a flying saucer, that we somehow, you know, acquired the technology as opposed to developing it. And have you heard the uh, story about the uh, the Nazi Roswell technology, how the... Oh, uh, yes. What do you think about that, then? The sort of idea that, uh, you know, the Nazi scientists were had been brought over, of course, with uh, UFO technology, and they were secretly working on it in uh, in the vicinity where Roswell was, uh, in the USA, and obviously this craft that came down was a reversed-engineered uh, uh, Nazi craft. I mean, 
What's your views on that? Well, it, I, I, I always respond to this simply uh, on a number of fronts. First of all, if the Germans had any of that technology, even in the final stages of the war, they would have turned the outcome around. Um, the idea that, for example, it's often suggested that the Germans had already developed flying wings, the famous Horton brothers, the Horton brother flying wing. And even that technology was still on the drawing boards. Everything suggesting as far as uh, that they actually were developing saucer-shaped craft and this notion that because Hitler was very much into the occult and they thought they were going to create a fleet of flying saucers, um, again, there's no evidence to that as far as I'm concerned. There, there may have been blueprints, there may have been drawings, but uh, there is absolutely nothing to suggest that anything ever, you know, was, uh, you know, flew, that ever, you know, was airborne. Um, yes, I mean, there's no question, both the Soviets and we Americans, uh, we split up basically the pool of captured German scientists at the fall of Berlin. Over here, it was known as Operation Paperclip. And they were, many of them, kept about 200 miles from Roswell at White Sands Proving Ground. But it was strictly to oversee the testing of the captured German V-2 rockets with the hope that um, they would eventually start uh, launching uh, people and that it uh, would be something that would take our own rocketry development from its uh, infant, uh, in, infancy to something that uh, we could actually launch weapons with beyond, you know, the thought that we'd be launching nuclear warheads at a, at a later date, and that certainly was the case. Uh, the other problem that the theorists that uh, come up as far as with this notion that, and I appreciate the fact that they are not accepting any of the Air Force United States government explanations either. They're still looking for a fifth explanation, so to speak. First of all, they have no witnesses to that effect. There, are, there is not a single Roswell witness that claims that they saw anything suggesting that this was of earthly manufacture. So there were no insignias, there were no numbers, there was nothing suggesting uh, as so often as the New Mexican people still experience that they're typically, when it involves a military test, it is tagged, it is numbered, and when it is recovered within civilian areas, they are instructed to immediately contact the authorities to report this, to place this phone call, and they're even off to reward. This has been going on since, you know, back in the 40s. So there was nothing of that sort, nothing whatsoever. Um, the third problem I have with it is that based on all chronology based on the timeline when the rancher first found the debris and when it was reported and when the military first arrived on the scene. That material was out there for four full days. No one disputes that. That's the chronology. That's, that's as tight as we can even make it. That's even accepting, you know, that uh, the rancher found it at the latest possible time before he did finally report it. Now, we have had three archaeological digs at that location. Well, I have flown over that site in small planes, 
in helicopters. It is high desert. It is open range, open grazing for cattle and sheep. There are no mountains, no canyons, no buildings. It's 85,000 acres of open prairie. And what one realizes in a small aircraft that once you are airborne, you can see for 100 miles. Now just imagine that whether it was the Germans or the Japanese or the Brits or anyone conducting such an experiment in conjunction with the United States military, and it crashes, it goes off course, whatever becomes of it, they would have found it through aerial reconnaissance before the rancher even found it. It's just that simple. And again, when they reported it, when it was reported to the authorities and then to the base at Roswell, they all behaved as though nothing was missing. No one had any word that anything had crashed. Nobody was looking for anything. The point is, Kevin, that material was out there for four full days. I can assure you that the base at Roswell would have been notified at every base within the vicinity to quickly recover, you know, such a test. Yeah. Again, nobody was looking for anything. And the point beyond that is that even after the base commander at Roswell immediately got on the phone and he called up his superior officer, Brigadier General Roger Ramey, who in turn contacted Washington, it went all the way up to Washington. And they, at that point, nobody still reacted as though, oh, my God, you know, we better get out there. It's one of ours. Or it's, you know, civilians know about this test. So what? that would then take another two days. So, and the biggest problem I have with any earthly explanation, alternative explanation, is that I don't care if it's a, you know, a, a German flying wing with Japanese pilots or anything else. No one accounts for the materials described by the first-hand witnesses. I mean, if we're talking about a German flying wing, we're not talking about indestructible material. We're not talking about paper-thin material possessing perfect memory. We're not talking about paper-thin weightless material that you couldn't shoot through, that you couldn't bend, you couldn't bang a 16-pound sledgehammer and not even put a scratch on. None of them address that, you know, that question. The fact that, well, what about all the witnesses to the materials that clearly are describing something, even by today's standards, beyond our own technology? Yeah. And, and again, you know, what type of balloon or, you know, instrument package could, uh, you know, scatter such debris over such a, a vast area? I mean, we're only talking about, uh, was it, was it a, a 500-foot balloon or something? Is that what we're talking of? That's correct. Well, not even that. And um, as far as even Mogul, at the, uh, I've heard a range from 250 feet to about, to about 500 feet. And yet this wreckage was scattered for almost a mile. And again, from all first-hand accounts, that either collectively all of these people are lying, whether civilian, military, press, what have you, or it did happen, just as they describe it, just as they saw it. And until I come up with any evidence, until I come up with any witnesses who were actually there, again, anybody can, you know, get up and voice an opinion. 
or a new theory, but based on what the witnesses are describing, and to their deathbeds, uh, this was nothing made on this earth. No. And why was balloon wreckage, you know, flowing under such heavy security? Uh, I mean, you know, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, many... Uh, well, you're talking about a town, basically, that was put under siege by the army, weren't you, at the time? That is correct. That is correct. I mean, they, had, they made a conscientious effort to go from house to house uh, out on that open uh, ranch land. Uh, Mac Brazel's neighbors, the, the nearest one being 10 miles away. But nonetheless, they systematically went from property owner to property owner, and uh, they ransacked homes, and they dumped over water tanks and slid open bags of feed and pulled up floorboards in houses and in barns and sheds, attempting to recover each and every last piece of physical evidence. And it was the same down in Roswell. So the point was, it's not that they were recovering information, people possessing knowledge about a top-secret device or a top-secret uh, you know, project. It was the actual materials. And to me, again, it demonstrates just how important that wreckage was, that they made sure that they, they retrieved every last shard, every last sliver of it. And if that isn't enough, we have first-hand information that they were going out to the site for two years thereafter, that they were still going out and searching the site. And I think the best example of that was the son, Bill Brazo Jr., who, you know, confronted by some neighbors, was asked if he had ever seen any of the wreckage himself. And he made the comment, well, he had found a few scraps, as he put it. He had found enough to actually fill up a scar box. And that was his mistake, though, because who should be at his door the very next morning but a captain and three non-commissioned officers? And basically, we know what you have, and you're going to give it to us. And they retrieved every last piece he had. Well, Kevin, this was two years after the incident. So once again, it was the materials that they were so concerned about having full possession of because anyone possessing a piece of the actual ship, the actual object, could prove that this wasn't a balloon, that this wasn't anything made on this earth, that this was something truly extraordinary. And they had to make sure that nobody ever had that chance. So, would you say there was multiple impact sites? Because, I mean, I've interviewed a few different people on the Roswell subject. Obviously, no one is as, as grand as yourself. Um, but, um, you know, they, they talk about different impact sites. And um, was there? Yes. There were as many, uh, and you're not going to believe this, there were as many as four sites. And the, the, the way that they were even uh, laid out, the way they were even discovered, um, the, the, the main site that we've spent most of our archaeological work would be what, what we call the debris field. We've been talking about that. It was almost a mile long, and so you had that much debris scattered over such a wide area, and there, there were people who still discovered pieces, 
months and even years later after heavy rains and, and wind erosion that would you know raise things to the surface. And so we've always seen that as the most promising for potentially finding a piece of what we call our Holy Grail, you know, the piece of the actual ship. And that was the site that Mac Brazo led the two intelligence officers to. Well, while they were at that site, civilians informed local law enforcement, who in turn would contact the military, of a site about 30 miles from there, much closer to Roswell, uh, actually about 35 to 40 miles just north of Roswell, whereas the debris field is about 65 miles to the northwest. And it's uh, the site we call the impact site, the final impact, where the remains of a, of a pod or a small capsule and, and bodies were discovered and then later recovered by the military. Well, what we then learned was, as we suspected, that Mac Brazel had to have seen much more than wreckage, more than debris, for the fact that the military was so keen on finding him and then abducting and uh, restraining him for about five days at the, at the base. They kept him there clearly suggesting that he had first-hand knowledge of something else. And then as we started to track down witnesses to that effect, we discovered that Brazel, about uh, two and a half miles from the debris field, discovered a couple of bodies. So we have a third location. But it's along the, the trajectory. It's between the debris field and the impact site. Yeah. It's along that very line, that trajectory. And then the fourth location would have been discovered by Dr. Lincoln La Paz, who was a famous uh, meteor expert out of the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque at that time. Uh, La Paz had worked with the Manhattan Project, had... Uh, been involved with the Japanese Fugo balloon bomb phenomenon and later even the green fireball phenomenon in New Mexico. Well, anyway, La Paz was briefed in Washington, and he arrived in Roswell just two, mi two months after the incident, so September of 1947. And there was a counterintelligence non-commissioned officer who I met and interviewed with uh, many times, the late... Uh, Master Sergeant Lewis Bill Rickett. And Rickett was assigned to assist La Paz in the field for a good three weeks. And according to Rickett, they discovered about five miles to the north of the debris field an area where the ground was crystallized. It was turned to glass, a small area as though it had been exposed to a tremendous amount of heat. And what was most amazing was the fact that they found more debris at that site. They found, you know, scattered pieces around that location. And according to Rickett, they also found a seamless, weightless, small black box. So according to Rickett, La Paz concluded that the object had uh, developed trouble 
It was uh, it was having difficulty in that severe lightning storm on the night in question, and it touched down. And then, as it then attempted to lift off from that location, it was either struck by lightning or an internal malfunction, and that's when there was a mid-air explosion, and it rained debris over that one location, scattering all that wreckage. And La Paz was not aware of any other sites. I mean, his job was to determine the speed and trajectory of this crash. Interesting speed and trajectory, you know, of a weather balloon. But nonetheless, it all ties with the same incident, the same object, the same crash. And again, it's all along the same trajectory. So we are still talking about one object, yet multiple impact sites. Just incredible. It must have been a fair size then. Originally, yes. Originally, yes. And uh, I think even based on numerous reports leading up to uh, you know, the Roswell crash, many of the, the objects were described 50 to 60 feet in diameter. And whereas the, I, we call it the pod or this capsule, which was the size of a, you know, generally described as a Volkswagen Beetle around that size, so far from 50 to 60 feet in diameter. So it would make more sense that it was part of, you know, the actual uh, capsule, the control cabin where the crew would have been contained. And, uh, I mean, we have that in our own aircraft, so it should, it should not appear unusual that they may have had such a device even within their own so, so tell me about the bodies then. I mean, was there any living aliens that were discovered? Within the last five years, we now have two first-hand military to a survivor that um, we have had through the years over a dozen second-hand family accounts describing a survivor. But we actually have uh, military who were either involved at taking or transporting bodies from Hangar P3, uh, the famous Building 84, over to the base hospital in Roswell, or experienced or saw something right at the hospital where they actually saw one move. They saw, uh, in the case of the one military uh, MP, he saw when the sheet pulled away from the gurney and he saw the eyes open and looked up at him. And to this day, even according to his wife, he still has frequent nightmares. He will bolt up, you know, in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and scream out because he can't get the face out of his mind. So now after all these years, he's still haunted by that that image. And when he tells us the story, in fact, the very first time, and we, we, we have a whole chapter where we describe his account and others describing the bodies in, in the book. And um, the first time he actually told us about it, about six years ago, he broke down. He, he cried. He sobbed over it, that he still you know, can't get over what he experienced. 
and it's an advantage that I have over the uh, the so-called Roswell theorists, who you know come up with a new angle, a new theory, to explain what happened, and then they set out to prove it. They have a preconceived uh, you know idea of what else it could have been, and then they set out to take our witnesses, our information, and spin it and twist it into something that suggests you know. German technology, Japanese technology, that type of thing. Well, again, I would challenge anyone to suggest that after 63 years that someone would still be affected that, uh, you know, that excruciatingly to the point of just suffering nightmares night after night, you know, overseeing something of an earthly nature. Uh, I mean, we all know World War II vets. We all know war vets that have suffered the worst ravages of war. And sure, many of them suffer psychologically after the fact. But um, not in describing the remains of a weather balloon. No. Sorry. Do you think, then, that this is just an American secret? Or do you think Roswell is a world government secret? I think initially it was... An American secret. I think President Harry Truman at that time uh, most likely did speak to certain heads of state. I would have no reason to doubt that he would have shared some of the information with Churchill at that time, possibly even Stalin. Though there was a report that came out in 1987-88 with the state-run newspaper in the Soviet Union, Pravda, and it documented how Stalin, Joseph Stalin, did not believe the original balloon explanation at Roswell, and that he had, you know, his own uh, spies look into it. And they reported back to him that fall, fall of 47. And their conclusion was whatever had crashed was not of American manufacture but it did not appear to be an immediate threat. And they suggested a top-level official investigation. Well, then Stalin, according to the press report, um, selected his highest-ranking scientists within his own Soviet academy, and they were to report back to him at a later time. Well, wouldn't we love to see that report? So I believe that in the first stages, the United States used it as a large bargaining chip, I think, especially with our opposition, I think with the Soviet Union, the notion that we were developing the technology, that if we reverse engineer the technology, you know, we're going to rule the planet, you know, we're going to have total air supremacy around the globe. I think the reason... We don't up to this point, is as I said earlier. They still can't figure it out, albeit on a small scale. They still can't, you know, replicate the technology and how these things fly, so to speak. But nonetheless, I think um, the way they have also ensured a lot of foreign cooperation is um, we've often, you know, we've, have, we've had a long history here in the States of foreign aid. I think very often we... We buy the cooperation of our allies. 
we we buy their silence beyond their cooperation of things overly sensitive. And, and one has to always keep in mind if this ever comes out, if disclosure ever does happen, who has who stands to lose the most? Well, the people who are in control, the people who you know have all the power. It would not necessarily be you know the underlings, you know us people who you know elect our representatives who act on our behalf. They're the ones who uh, you know all at once overnight we become earthlings. Nationalism, as you mentioned, that we would immediately distrust our own governments. And so for that very reason, I think um, there was also a, a high degree of caution as to who we entrust with the information, uh, to what degree. And I think until we realized that we weren't dealing with an immediate threat off the planet. I mean, one can only imagine back in '47. They didn't know if this was a vanguard of an approaching invasion or, or what, especially if they immediately concluded it was something, you know, manufactured off the planet. What answers, again, do you have? So all you can do is, you know, bury it until you get those answers. And I think that's the reason it still remains buried, because they still don't have the answers. And I think for that same reason, they still don't share the technology and they still don't share the information, unless it be with our closest allies. And for that reason, I think that uh, that the U.K. would have been brought in on the information very early on. The problem is, though, isn't it, Donald? You know, is the world ready for E.T.? I mean, if we were to know that there was life out there and it was, you know, in the masses, um, uh, is, is religion ready for E.T.? I, I, don't, I don't know. There was a famous uh, study over here in the late 80s called the Alexander study and uh, they polled all the uh, main religious leaders around the world and they broke it down specifically as far as on contact that there would be a, re a realization that there are other life forms that there is life intelligent life beyond the planet and even uh, to the degree that we would have a confrontation, that there would be a landing, that there would be an acknowledgement that we are being visited, that we are being watched by, a, by biological beings from other planets. And according to the Alexander study, 83% of the world religions have absolutely no problem with this. In fact, as evidenced just uh, last year again with that statement from the Vatican that uh, the Catholic Church, for example, concedes that it has absolutely no problem with acknowledging life, intelligent life, beyond our own planet. Uh, it's a good trivia question I often throw out, especially on college campuses. Who operates more observatories around the world than any other organization? It's the Catholic Church. Yep, the Catholic true. Church operates more observatories <laughs> around the world than any other organization. And you also, you, you brought up the main question as far as, are we ready? We've all grown up as far as with Star Wars and Star Trek and the, the notion that uh, not only may we be visited by 
one you know group of uh, intelligent beings from another planet, but that the entire universe may be teeming with with other life forms. I, I think the best example, Kevin, that I can make is if you think back to 1947, and all those people who were involved, who were there. They all lived out their lives. They 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 raised their families. They worked their jobs. They went to church, and they were there. They had nothing, nothing in their, you know, army manual, nothing in the press. There were no UFO books. There was there was absolutely nothing that they could, you know, go to, to deal with what they saw, firsthand, what they saw with their own eyes, what they held in their own hands, and that was 63 years ago, and they dealt with it, and the thought that here we are now. 63 years later, and we've digressed, we've gone backwards. Well, there again, I'm not going to let the government dictate what I'm ready or not ready for. I think, as evidence yourself and your own research, your own background, you've schooled, you've educated yourself as to what is going on, what is actually there for anyone to access if they're willing to look into it. And it's not as frightening as anyone would have us believe. We've slowly been conditioned through our lives not to believe, to ridicule, to dismiss this subject. But yet, as yourself, those of us who've actually looked into it, the same can be said about the slow acceptance that, well, what if we are not alone? What if there are visitors who have been coming here for centuries, have influenced us, who have schooled us, who have, you know actually uh, taken us to that next level of uh, technology, and yet it's always been there right under our noses, and due to the arrogance, you know, of, of mankind, we, for the same reason, you know, we we tend to be more humanists in nature, that we're always looking to, you know, science, we're looking to man to always solve all of our problems. Well, very often man causes problems. And who knows how much help we've had through the centuries. And therein, um, I have greater hope for what may, else, or what may still be out there being of an assistance, of being an influence, than us sitting down and solving all of our dilemmas on our own sake, uh, I think, if anything, we've demonstrated that uh, we tend to wreck a lot more than we we preserve. Definitely. And, uh, you know, if I can be one beacon of hope for you in the UK, you know, I want to be part of that mainstream media that takes your subject seriously and, and gives it a voice. Well, and I know that, Kevin. I appreciate that uh, and more than you know, because it's, a, it's an obstacle. It's a problem we have here in the States that uh, we have... You can count on two fingers the number of, of reporters who take this subject serious enough to even give us a fair shake. And there was a reporter who used to be with CNN. He was their head science reporter. And we were actually sitting in the very hangar that the wreckage and the bodies had transported through at Roswell. And he, you know, postured the question at one point, you know, Don, you've been working on this now for a good part of your life. You devoted all these years, all this time. 
why are you doing this? And I looked him square in the eye and I said, because you won't. And I could say that same thing to 99% of the press we have here in the States. They won't. Well, I will. My colleagues will. You will. Because we realize that we're dealing potentially with the biggest story of the millennium. And the point is, and I, I, I'm very quick to also you know, voice this argument, and I, I, I say this in total defiance of any of the debunkers. First of all, if I solve this, if we prove Roswell with physical evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that it indeed was precisely what 100% of the witnesses describe it as something manufactured off the earth. It's mission accomplished. I'm done. I have nothing more to prove. And I could care less what anyone else thinks because I have solved the mystery. It's a done deal. I get on with my life. I don't have any need to deal with anyone who believes anything else because I, re- I become 100% convinced. It's not a belief any longer. It's a conviction. The, the bunkers, if they are 100% sure that it's not, why do they continue to engage us? Why do they continue to debate us? Why do they continue to write their books you know, attacking our witnesses over and over again. Because if they're, again, so sure it's not, why do they continue to damage control? Like useful idiots, you know, for the government, they have to go out and constantly remind everyone, hey, it's just the weather balloon. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, that that smacks in the face of every, you know, thing that science stands for, that you don't have to go back and essentially re-split the atom every week. And the other problem, or the other the, the argument as far as that I make, as far as with the skeptics, with the debunkers, is if I'm wrong about Roswell, if I'm wrong about UFOs, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. Whereas, if they're wrong, if they knowingly have been just taking marching orders and have been doing all they can to distract, to divert, to cover this up, who is guilty of the greater crime, at least in my eyes? If they're wrong, it changes everything. If they're wrong, it rewrites history. It changes everything that has transpired over these past 63 years. And maybe therein lies why they are so aggressive in their relentless attacking of us. Because who has the greater stake in all this? Again, I'm just trying to prove what hundreds of people have testified to the effect as being historic and reality as opposed to their making every effort to disprove it. And who's been the most egregious, the most aggressive, the most, uh, you know, assaultive 
in their smear tactics and uh, their character assassination. Um, okay, look, Donald, your website, please. www.roswellinvestigator, one word, dot com. Roswellinvestigator.com. And we also make it a point, people, uh, our email addresses, my partner, uh, Thomas J. Carey, uh, we are happy to uh, respond to any email inquiries, any questions. Uh, the current book, it's the revised edition of Witness to Roswell, uh, is presently in, in uh, Barnes & Noble and Borders bookstores, Amazon.com, also available as far as at the website. Uh, the book was the number one best-selling UFO book in the world in 2007 and 2008. And this is the updated revised edition. Four new chapters, 50 new witnesses, 100 new pages. So uh, the hunt continues. Right. Well, we'll link all that onto our website, including uh, your email address as well. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Kevin, it was a pleasure, and you keep up your great work as well. Thank you. To find out more information on Donald Schmidt, go to roswellinvestigator.com or visit my site, themoreshow.co.uk, and look up Donald Schmidt under past guests. Well, until next time, be safe. <laughs>